The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see you today. Just a few thoughts about the meditation we just did. It's really not that different than how we normally get guided, but just to point out that you might find it useful as you're doing your basic mindfulness or awareness practice to keep a particular theme in mind. So it's in some ways it's not different because it's we're just using awareness, the attention, to pay attention to the conditions of the present moment, like the experience of the body, the experience of the breath in the body, experience of hearing sounds, mental activities, just thoughts being known. But we're using a particular theme to illuminate the experience. So like the theme of love or the theme of caring, compassion, still opening to the present moment, but it's like the lens through which we're opening to the present moment is begging the question, Can this heart care about this? Can the heart be tender, gentle, loving, patient, forgiving, and all the different flavors of love? And there are other themes that you could keep in mind in your meditation. You could keep the theme of impermanence in mind. So you could still be aware of the body or the breath moving in the body. But then with the theme of impermanence, you're noticing that the phenomena of the body, mind, breath, that it's changing, that it's uh, ephemeral, it's in process, can't be grasped as a thing because it's always becoming another thing and another thing and another thing. And so I want to make this point because, especially for those of you who've been practicing for a while now, you might find it quite useful to use themes, the themes that the Buddha recommends Because what that does, it's not so much that to really connect with the present moment, we need the theme of love or compassion, but by picking up that theme of love or compassion in the way that we did tonight, that's just one way, there are many ways to do it, then it can, by contrast, it can illuminate subtle habits of aversion we wouldn't otherwise notice, right? So when we're inviting ourselves to sort of you know, just it's just a skillful means to breathe in and out of the heart, to tune into the sensitivity of the heart, to keep bringing to mind, I do care about this life. Then the part of the habit energy of our mind that's like, screw this, you know, I can't wait till this is done, that's irritated, that's impatient, that's judgmental, that all of a sudden stands out. The contrast between that very simple authentic wish, may this life be at ease, or I care about this life, I care about this body. There's a big difference between that and, isn't this over yet? (laughs) You know, or why does my body hurt so much? So we use the themes not so much to kind of make something happen, as much as we use these different Dharma themes, reflections, to illuminate what we're not seeing yet in the mind. And one of the things most of us aren't completely seeing, at least not all the time, 
for all the subtle habits of aversion, right? And you can probably guess, we're not seeing all the subtle habits of craving. Reflecting, using the theme of impermanence really highlights craving because all our kind of greed, it's based on the thought that when I get something, it's going to matter. And the reflection on impermanence challenges that notion. It's like, yeah, I might get it, but then it's going to go away eventually, right? So what does it matter? I'm going to get into shape. I'm going to put money in the bank. I'm going to clean my house and then I'm going to die. (laughs) I mean, we bring to mind some aspect of impermanence. And so it's like it, it takes the air out of that inflated idea that if I get into shape somehow forever, my problems will be solved, or if I save money. No, I mean, it may be wise to get in shape or to save some money or to clean the bathroom, but it doesn't resolve the basic problem of impermanence, right? So keeping that theme in mind, impermanence, really highlights the subtle aspects of greed in the mind and keeping love in mind. And there are literally many ways to keep the theme of love. And there are many flavors of love, like joy, I mentioned, and forgiveness, and patience, and compassion, and gratitude, and just the gentleness, the tenderness. By finding some way that's suitable for your mind, your heart, keeping it in mind, really will highlight any little subtle tendencies to being aversive, fearful, impatient. So any questions about the way we practice in the guided sit tonight that come to mind? Just to clarify that. Good. So we've been talking about, I think, uh, one of the most potent, I mean, really potent in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. And this is the area of speech because it is literally front and center in terms of how we set emotion suffering for ourselves. I mean, probably if we reflect just today, how many times, how many of us and how many times we spoke in a way or didn't speak in a way that created troubles or suffering. You know, just the tone was off, we said more than we needed to say, or we thought we were being kind of funny, but really it was just about self-inflation, like wanting to be cool or wanting someone to think we're cool or wanting to be smart or something like that, or wanting to subtly put somebody in their place or put somebody else down. I mean, we do it all the time. It's so easy for us to make fun of the politicians and how they distort the truth or color the truth or lie outright. <laughs> Don't even, I was listening to Bill Maher, some of you know, he's a, a TV personality, and, um, but his program on Friday night that you can get on the internet afterward, you know, he was just talking about how People don't even bother to be embarrassed about their lies, the politicians anymore. You know, it's just like, it doesn't matter because the people that support them don't know or don't care. And uh, 
it's, it is a scary thing. You know, when people, that means you and me, when we start to lose a sense of valuing truth, and then we ourselves feel, I mean, the, the truth is we'll actually feel badly about holding back on the truth, coloring the truth, lying, but we train the mind not to notice that it hurts, that it doesn't feel good. Yet we train the mind to discount it or to be in denial of it. And then it's like it just builds on itself. You know, we feel we find more reasons, more ways to justify speaking in a way where we think we'll get what we want as opposed to speaking in a way that aligns with the truth. And I mentioned in the earlier talks in the sequence, I think this is week three or four now that we've been talking since the new year, we've been talking about this value coming out of the Buddhist tradition on truth, truthfulness. And it doesn't relate just to speech, but speech obviously is a big part of this value of truth. That it's, it, it connects right to the core, right to the heart of this practice of awakening because the whole point of awareness practice, mindfulness practice, is to connect. To connect with the way things are. To have a very real, direct, immediate uh, experience, not mediated by our language, not mediated, you know, there's no deceit without language. But you need, you know, we need our constructions, our mental constructions to be deceitful to bend the truth. So we start by just this, developing this value of connecting with experience. And then we do the very difficult work at what does that value look like when I'm interacting with my spouse? What does it look like when I'm interacting with the people at work, with my community, with my cat and dog? What does it mean, this commitment to truth, to being real, to being grounded, to not intentionally manipulating things to get what I want or to get away from what I'm afraid of? I mean, it's okay to want things and it's okay to want to get away from things, but we can be truthful about that. So last week I mentioned just as a beginning um, practice for ourselves, to keep in mind two things. And Sylvia talks about this a little bit in her book. I have these two reference books up here in case you want some support for this series of talks. We'll be right kind of in the middle of these 10 beautiful qualities called the Paramis in the Buddhist tradition. And there are two nice books that cover these same 10 beautiful qualities. And truthfulness is just one of them. Generosity, morality, resoluteness, equanimity, loving-kindness, patience, energy, wisdom. Maybe one that I'm forgetting. But anyway, there's Sylvia Borstein's book. She's a wonderful Buddhist teacher in this tradition of Buddhism out in the West Coast, one of the founders of Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Pay attention for goodness sake. This book's been out for a while, so you can get it in some of the public libraries as well. And then this book you can download for free online. It's a monastic book, and generally they don't charge for the books, um, but you need an e-reader, or if you, you could write the monastery, and they'll mail you a copy if they still have them. And it's called parami. That's this Pali word. 
It means to cross life's floods, to cross the floods of our minds, right? The beautiful qualities that help our mind to not get swept away. These are the ten qualities we've been looking at. And his name is Ajahn, which just means teacher in sort of monastic terms. And his name is Suchito, S-U-C-I-T-T-O. And you can take a look at this afterward. So these are two great references for these teachings. In any case, in Sylvia's book, he gives us two really practical ways to begin this work. Or she gives us this first one, at least, which is to just hold in our mind. As, again, this is a theme we keep in mind, and especially as we're living our life, going through the day. Each time we feel compelled to speak is what I'm about to say an improvement on silence. And just to, not in a judgmental way, but just as a way to pause. Is this needed? Is it helpful? Is it an improvement? Is it likely to lead to happiness for myself or another? And then the second, more subtle, but ultimately more powerful reflection to keep in mind, remember, for those who were here last week, it has to do with needs. And this comes out of the NVC, the Nonviolent Communication Training, but it's basic human common sense. That whenever we're in an interaction, we're grounding in the very you know, direct experience that I'm a beast. And as a beast, I have my basic primal physical needs of safety, food, shelter, you know, the sort of being a sexual being that's sort of that charge. And then as a social being with all of my social conditioning, I have some basic needs to belong, to feel respected, be heard, to be, you know, to receive affection, to be liked, or whatever your particular social needs are. And then we have maybe some spiritual needs. So the second reflection that we can basically hold as we live our life of relationship, right, because we're always in relationship, is just to be really honest about having needs. And when the more we're really direct and honest that I have needs, I, and you can just check it out right now as we look around the room, everybody in this room is a beast, is a social being, a spiritual being with needs. Everybody. We all have needs. And so if we're going to be in relationship with each other, it would be great if we could not forget that. Like if we could keep that in mind, keep that theme in mind. This person just has needs. I have needs. Do I have any clue what this person's needs are? Does this person have any clue what my needs are? Maybe we should, you know, maybe our dialogue should begin on that level. Let me tell you what my needs are in this situation. You know, what are your needs? What I heard you say is, I mean, there's nothing nicer than when somebody in an appropriate way can mirror back to us what our needs are, so that we have, they may not be able to meet our needs, may not even be in their power to meet our needs, but the fact that somebody is connected with us enough to know what our needs are and can mirror that back, we feel heard. We feel like that person cares enough to have picked that up and can and proved it by, by restating it. So we, we really get the sense, oh, they, they get it. 
And then we can give that gift to the other person. We can say, what I sense you need now, or what I sense you're asking for, or what I sense you want in your life, what you're looking for in your life is, and then we repeat back what we've been hearing. Is this right? We might even ask for clarification. Does that sound right to you? That you're looking for this, or that you need this, or you're asking for this. It's kind of ground zero for a healthy relationship that we're meeting in this space that we're two beasts, two social beings, two spiritual beings. And by definition, we have needs. So let's, let's ground there. Let's be real about that. So that's a nice reflection you can keep using that. But I wanted to go a little further, and this comes from... Um, Sylvia's uh, different book, It's Easier Than You Think, one of her earlier books. And uh, there she talks, she has a chapter on right speech, I believe. And the notes I took, she divides it into four levels. And this is just a really useful way to think about using our speech. So the first level is just getting skillful at restraint. So a lot of the time, you know, we're rushing We don't, I mean, just to be honest, we don't have a lot of mindfulness. The mind's a little scattered, a little fried from being pushed around during the day. But there's enough clarity, enough mindfulness, that we know at least one thing, which is I don't want to make a mess of this interaction. I don't want to end up causing more harm for myself or another, right? I mean, isn't that true that even when we're all over the place, a little fried, a lot of the time, we can at least be connected with that truth, which is, I know I'm capable of making a mess, saying something I shouldn't say or causing problems, and I don't want to, right? So what that does is it just ignites or it supports this ability to restrain. Like unless the urge to say something gets the green light, we keep our mouth shut. You know, it's like, because we still, we may not be able to sort of figure out how to be skillful, but we have enough sort of wisdom to say, wait, I'm just not going to say that. I'm not sure this is the right thing to say, so I'm not going to say it. You know, and I'm going to actually remove myself even from the situation, because if I don't, I might just end up blurting it out, right? Because even I might be able to restrain myself in this moment but I could get re-triggered in the next moment. So I'm just going to move away from this. So that's that, what Sylvia calls entry-level right speech or wise speech, where all we can do, but it's something, it's not nothing, all we can do is find in the heart, in the mind, the desire, the wholesome desire, the wholesome resolve, not to make things worse, not to cause harm with our speech, right? Not to use it as a weapon, because we all know we can, especially those people we love, right, that we've been close to, we know how to hurt them. I don't know if was it in the Sunday night group that I mentioned, uh, maybe my brother will listen to this, I know he listens to some of these talks, but way back when, when he was young, he's about four years younger than me, So I was probably eight. He must have been like four. And uh, he had a turtle. 
and uh, he was keeping it in the backyard. It was the summertime, and the turtle wasn't doing very well. I forget exactly why it was sick. It, it had a sore at the top of its head that wouldn't heal or something like that. And it was, you know, my brother loved this turtle and did his best to take care of it as a four-year-old can. I mean, we could go on and on about human beings taking animals. <laughs> That's another conversation. But there it was, you know. And uh, for whatever reason, he got me mad. And so I don't even remember exactly what I said, but I said something that made him feel guilty about not taking care of his turtle. You know, like, hey, you're going to kill that turtle, or something like that, you know. And he, he realized that there was some truth to it, like this turtle wasn't doing very well, and he, that turtle was completely dependent on him, and he felt really badly really hurt. And I, I still feel badly even to this day having used those words in that way, you know, because I had power. I knew this person and I knew where his soft spot was and I took advantage of it, right? Because I had power and I wanted to use the power of my words to sort of prove my power, like my power to hurt him. And, you know, that doesn't feel good, even today. So it's, now how many situations today do we have that kind of power where people really care about what we think about them or what we say or even what our body language is, right? Probably a lot of situations. And so this is that vigilance, like I don't want to add harm. I mentioned last week or the week before to imagine that we're walking around and there are a lot of toes to step on, very easily to act in ways, to speak in ways that cause harm. And a lot of the harm we cause is even, it's not so much I want to hurt you as much as I don't care enough about hurting you to pay attention. You know what I mean? We're like, we're willing to be sloppy and we think, well, I didn't mean to hurt you, but we did mean to not care enough to pay attention that I could have hurt you. Because right? if we really care, then we're willing to stay vigilant, to stay awake, knowing that how we show up in our relationship really matters. It matters. It matters that we notice where somebody's at because a particular joke when somebody's in a particular place isn't, a, isn't funny. But another day, you know, that kind of teasing might be just a real sign of intimacy. But how do we know? Well, we have to, we have to be there. Right speech depends on being in the moment. Then another, the next level up, you know, the high level. So entry level is just this commitment not to cause harm their speech, not to use it as a club. If we don't know that it's useful, then we practice restraint or holding back. And then the next step or the next stage, um, Sylvia talks about gossip, like really starting to look at gossip. And so in the most general sense, it's talking about another person who isn't there. Right? And we do this a lot. I mean, you might know better than to do it about like a sibling 
who's not there. So talking with another sibling or talking with a family member about another family member. But we do it all the time with politicians, right? It's like they don't count as people. I mean, it's interesting the kind of language, thoughts we allow ourselves about celebrities and politicians and people in the news that, you know, we wouldn't allow it. We wouldn't allow those thoughts with people at our local meditation center or in our family. But somehow, I mean, it's interesting, like in the comedy too, the way that celebrities and and politicians are put down by comedians. And then, we, and then we, the people, who laugh. Like, well, because they're, it's sort of like, because you've chosen to be a politician or celebrity, we can be, you know, hateful, basically. Laugh at you. You can kind of create the space for a laughter. And I'm, you know, I'm guilty of this 100%. And in a way, we sort of know better, but we can't help ourselves, Right? Except we can, you know, we can, we can either not watch it or when it arises, we can see the movement to laughter and it's not about repressing that, but it's about remembering that there's a person with needs. You know, these politicians, these celebrities, they're just, they've got a sensitive heart. They're trying to make sense of their life. They have their fears and their hopes and their neurotic tendencies, just like we do. They just have a lot more of the spotlight than we do. That's the only real difference, maybe more power than we do. So this second level of right speech is starting to take responsibility for all of the situations where we're talking about somebody who's not there. And then the question is, well, would I say that? Would I do this if the person were here? That's an interesting question. Could I say this to the person that we're talking about? And if not, why not? Why, Why wouldn't it be appropriate to say what I'm saying to this person about that person to that person? You know, would I laugh at, and then fill in the blank politician's name, or would I say this about that politician if she or he were right here, sitting there, a real person. And then the question is, well, you know, as a practice, well, maybe I'll test that out. Like if your answer is, yeah, I, I'd probably say that to that person, then, then say, okay, honey, say that to that person. Find a time to say what you've just been saying to that person and see if that's actually true. And so with this commitment to um, not gossip, we're really teasing out the sense of mistrust that comes from gossip. It's kind of a destabilizing quality, like what's, what's she thinking? What are they saying over there? You know, it's the... And the thing is, we're, we're rightly suspicious because we know what we're saying over here. <laughs> you know? So it, it, wouldn't, it doesn't surprise us that they may be say, saying things over there. 
So what are they saying over there? And, and here's the interesting thing about gossip, because a lot of times, you know, when we're gossiping about somebody, a lot of what we might be saying on the surface is sort of nice. But it's really interesting how our minds are very tricky like this, you know. We're not, you know, the people who come to Common Ground. We're not the kind of people who are going to say, that idiot, you know, such a, did you see how he dressed? Or, you know, we're not going to do that. But we might say something like, well, he's just, you know, he's really trying. (laughs) But what we're really saying, you know, the intention in the mind is, you know, he doesn't belong. This person does not belong doesn't have a clue. But, you know, we're just being polite. So even if it seems that what you're saying about somebody is supportive or kind, we really want to look. And a lot of gossip is sort of interesting. It's more, often it's, it's not even really about that person as much as it is sort of supporting the clubbiness, the tribalness of the group that you're with, like we're the people that think that politician is an idiot, or we're the people that would not dress that way, you know, or we're the people that think common ground is not the kind of place to practice, or is the kind of place to practice, you know, it's like we have these ways of building up and putting down, may not be so much about our opinions as much as saying, hey, we're family, we're a club, we're, we're a tribe, we belong together, we're not those other people. And so that's a very understandable because you know part of our social needs that we have as a social beast is we need a sense of belonging. But at what cost? And what are healthier ways to establish a sense of belonging and what are not so healthy ways to establish a sense of belonging. And remember, taking up speech as a place for practice is not meant to give you give yourself ammunition for judgment. Right? I mean we have a lot of good reason to judge ourselves. We don't need more reasons to judge ourselves. It's about being interested in the causes of suffering for ourselves and for others. Not just the causes of suffering for other people, but also the causes for our own suffering. Because as we develop more and more mindfulness in our lives, you'll notice, I'm sure many of you notice, it's like after we've been talking to somebody and then sort of back in our car or more in a quiet space, we will notice what was off in the conversation. It will be, in a sense, reverberating and the heart and the body, like, oh, that, that doesn't feel so good, what I just said, what I just was in the middle of. Even if we weren't even the one talking, but we just were there receiving somebody else, but didn't have the wherewithal to sort of say, you know what, I don't want to hear this, or this doesn't sound right to me. I can't be part of this. I mean, how many times have we been with somebody else's wrong speech but we didn't feel clear enough to name it and say, you know, I don't want to be part of this. So in a way, we say yes to their wrong speech 
by not saying anything. Right? And then we even feel, after that, we feel like, oh yeah, that wasn't right. But we want, that isn't bad to feel that, it's good to feel that. Like, oh yeah, that, because if we don't feel the unpleasant reverberation from, let's just call it wrong speech or unskillful speech, what would be the incentive to change? We need that yucky feeling to feel, yeah, let's not do that again. Let's stay awake so that we'll have this sixth sense when this is about to happen, play out again like this, and we'll make different choices. We'll say something different. We'll keep the mouth shut. We'll walk away or we'll do whatever. We'll experiment, see what works so that we don't end up with this feeling, which is basically the heart saying, honey, don't do that again. Please don't do that again. That's what that yucky feeling is. So from a Buddhist point of view, from this practice's point of view, we appreciate that feeling of remorse, right? Like, ooh, because it's, that is lived or active wisdom, right? Reverberating in the heart, honey, don't do that. When you do that, it feels like this. Don't do that. So we, in a way, we, we highlight that. We, we keep those wounds of having been unskillful. We keep them on the surface. We don't try to, oh yeah, I don't want to be that person. No, we say, yeah, I was that person. That's what I did do. That's what I did say. That's what I didn't say. We keep it on the surface because it informs us as we move forward. We think that we get weak if we have all those wounds, all those mistakes on the surface, but actually it's a sign of strength. You know, like, I'm the one who's capable of all of this great array of mistakes, right? But because I'm keeping them on the surface, because I'm aware of them, that means I feel confident enough to stay connected and I'm much less likely to repeat those same mistakes because I'm honoring them as mistakes. Like, honey, don't do that. So that's the second level. First level, just this basic raw commitment. Don't add harm. There's enough pain in the world. I don't know how to do this, but I'm committed to not harming, causing harm. So if I'm at all confused about what I'm about to say, it's a blunt instrument, but I'm just going to put the brakes on and keep quiet, right? Pay a little bit more attention, remove myself if I have to, because I know it's easy to do or say things that cause harm. And then the second is sort of highlighting this next level, highlighting when we talk about people who aren't there, what you call gossip. And just looking at that, what's, this, what's going on? What's the motivation here? And then that really highlights this next level. So Sylvia calls this the very high level. So we had entry level, high level, which is the gossip. And then the very high level is when we start uh, realizing behind every time we speak or don't speak, whenever we're involved in a relationship, interacting, relating with another person, the mind is governed by intention, right? There's a motivation for our body language, for what we say, for there's a motivation every time we don't say something. So instead of 
paying attention to her words, which in a funny way, it's too late, because if the word's there, it's already out. So what we're doing, and this is the neat thing, I'm sure you've noticed this, those of you who've been practicing for a while, when we're more present, more mindful, it has the sense of slowing things down. Now, of course, nothing actually slows down when we're mindful, but because the mind is more sensitive, seeing more, it's as if things slow down. So when we're in conversation, interacting with the group, but we're mindful, we're really present, and often this can be as simple as being interested in the experience of the body. Because if we're aware of the body when we're in conversation, then we're going to be aware of emotion, and we're going to be aware of intention to speak, and we're going to be aware of what we just spoke, and we're going to be aware of any reverberation from what we've just said. Because the way real mindfulness is, it's this all-inclusive presence. Even though we might train the mind to be mindful by paying attention to one thing, like the breath coming in, the breath going out, we're cultivating not just the depth of focus, like we're focusing on one thing, but with mindfulness, we're equally interested in the breath. So we may start with a particular aspect of our experience and pay attention to it, but everything else that's happening in the present moment is right there in the periphery. We're not, we're not training the mind to shut off the rest of the present moment just because we're using the breath to learn how to be in the present moment. We feel the whole body is right there, and right there with the body is hearing and seeing and mental activity. It's not like it could go anywhere, right? Where would it go? The only way or place it could go is if the mind excludes, if it has its exclusive attention with one object of experience, then the mind, in a sense, is pretending that nothing else is happening. But it's still right there. But we're just saying, I'm not looking at you, so I'm going to pretend you're not there. But the experience of the body is there, and the experience of hearing is there. So when you're in conversation, interacting, then ground in the experience of the body, and that will help you be in the present moment. And the more you're stable with your awareness in the present moment, things slow down and you can notice the motivation, the intention to speak. And it's actually more important. Like I've said a few times tonight, there are a lot of times we say something, and on the surface, a lot of the people who hear it might think, oh my God, he's, that's really a great thing he just said, you know, skillful thing. But it, for us, in the heart, the motivation, it was a dig. It was like a poke or a inflation. But it, on the surface, it looks like, oh yeah, he's being a nice guy. But it doesn't matter what other people think. There's only one thing that matters, and that's the intention or motivation behind the speech. And it doesn't matter if nobody else catches it, because this is how karma works. It's not that God or Santa Claus or some outside force catches when we're good or bad. The heart, the sensitive heart, or whatever you want to call it right here, it directly feels the quality of the motivation or the intention behind all our actions. So even if it looks sweet on the outside, but it was meant to be a dig or meant to inflate, 
uh, ego, e- egoic sense, that is going to make an impression on the heart. The heart can't lie. This is how karma works. So if it was motivated by greed, or motivated by aversion, or motivated by delusion, then that's the impression that the heart receives. That's, so then the heart going forward is the heart that's been impacted in that way. So the, one of the, and this isn't just around right speech, which is generally one of the great motivations to develop mindfulness is to have enough stability, enough continuity of mindful awareness so that we begin to notice the motivation, the quality. It's almost as if you learn to taste the quality of the intention in the mind before every thought, every spoken word, every action, every deed that you do in life. You're just sensing, is it coming out of greed? Is it coming out of aversion? Is it coming out of denial or distraction or delusion? Is it coming out of love? Is it coming out of kindness? Is it coming out of joy? Right? So in like the tradition they say, everything rests on the tip of motivation. And this is especially true in speech. What? What does it taste like, the intention behind what I'm saying, what I'm about to say, what I've just said? So it doesn't matter if you've already said it, you can still taste the intention behind it. It's better to catch it late than not at all, or catch it white when you're doing it, or even best, catch it the moment before you say it. Because then there's still time to go, this doesn't taste good. I'm not going to speak what I'm have the impulse to speak because I don't trust the force, the volitional force that those words are coming from. I don't trust it. It's like I'm trying to impress my wife or I'm trying to, you know, be better than somebody or I'm trying to basically say, look at me, look at me. I don't trust that voice. I don't trust that need. So I'm So we always have an option when there's awareness. What's the option? We can either say it or we can feel the unpleasantness of that intention in the heart, right? That's the option. And it's always more skillful to just feel the neediness than to act it out. It seems when we're not paying attention that that yucky feeling will get relieved if we say or do what we want, what we have the impulse to say or do. But it's so much more skillful to just feel what we feel and not act it out. And this is something each of us has to learn for ourselves. You really have to directly experience in your life with great gratitude eventually how nice it is when we feel an unskillful motivation to realize we have the option just to feel it and how that protects us from having to act it out one more time. And that's how we wear out bad habits, is we feel how unpleasant the impulse is without acting out the impulse, right? That's if we catch it before. That's the third, that's the higher level. And then the ultimate high level, as Sylvia says, is this, it's really the, you know, what we'd call a saint. 
And so, you know, one way to talk about a saint, somebody who's awake, enlightened, a mind that's not um, dominated by greed, anger, and delusion, is that person is able to be in the moment. They're not trying to speak skillfully, right? Because the idea of Mark trying to speak skillfully is an obstruction. So you have to let go of that construction. And it's this radical trust that if I'm just present, radically present, that's my only sort of tool, my only defense to be a happy, loving, skillful human being, I give away every other defense and I give myself one tool, which is to be radically present. So then when you go into an interaction or into a social situation, you don't go in with a plan. This is what I should say. This is what I shouldn't say. Your only tool, your only plan is just to be 100% there. And whatever I say or don't say, it will naturally arise because of being connected in that moment, being really there, really real, really awake to the motivations, to everything that's moving. So this speech is not prepackaged. You know how it is. Somebody asks you an opinion about something that you've expressed your opinion on before, and then you're just like going to repeat yourself, like, oh, I know what I think about that. So then we say it again. But this place of practice, we're not, the mind isn't dependent on what we used to think even if it was just five minutes ago. Because now they ask us something, whatever, like, how are you doing? You know? So we don't, we're not coming from this preformed idea that, you know, I'm having a bad day. We actually check. You know, there's just this, and then the words come right out of how it is right now. And it's the same with any opinion or any, you know, thought we have about anything, we're not relating with prepackaged ideas. We're just responding moment by moment by moment. That's real right speech or skillful speech. And we'll talk more about these in the weeks ahead. We, at least, uh, we will at least spend one more week on it, maybe two more weeks. But it'd be nice to hear from some of you. We have about eight minutes left. Any questions that you have? Any experiences from your own life? I've been saying over the last couple of weeks, you know, cumulatively, we have a lot of wisdom around right speech in this room. So it'd be nice to hear from people. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this. So who'd like to begin? Yeah, please. Is this close enough? Yeah, All right. there you go. <laughs> uh, my name is Alex, and over Christmas, my mother got me a wonderful book. I'm a cat lover, and... Uh, I also do meditation as well. She got me a book of meditation and cat lovers. So it has a quote of meditation, and then it has a wonderful cat picture next to it. It's wonderful. <laughs> and one of them uh, that reminded me of this speech was uh, on pure thought. You know, it was on talking pure thought? Pure thought. And it said, it had the quote um, that Buddha said, and then it had a translation under it that I could understand better. And the translation said that when somebody acts upon a pure thought... Um, it follows them, the happiness follows them like a shadow all day. So that's just something out there that, uh, that really resonated with me in this speech today. Yeah, yeah, that's the first section of the Dhammapada, and you want to look that up. Yeah, and it's same, it's like 
the goodness follows us and the unskillfulness follows us, right? So it's, it's kind of pointing to karma. It's like we set the quality of our intentions, really set things in motion. So when, when the mindfulness is strong enough and there's an unskillful intention, we're willing just to feel it without acting it out. And when a wholesome, beautiful intention arises, we feel it, but we're not afraid to act it out because it's only going to set in motion what's good, right? So we let it come to fruition or express itself, whether it's in body language or words or whatever that it looks like. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Who's next? Tom in the back. Uh, Mark, I had this um, experience with uh, my mom, who is um, almost 95, um, and I was complaining about my brother. And she listened for a little bit, and she said, this was about four or five months ago, and she just said, um, she, she said to me, um, stop, uh, the exact words, stopped picking on your brother. And I sat there for a minute, and I went, oh, yeah, <laughs> I, that's what I'm doing. And it was really interesting because I realized that I do this little picky. I was sort of complaining about I couldn't communicate with him and and that kind of thing. And uh, I stopped doing it. And, and uh, I think since then, I've stopped picking on a lot of people and realizing that it's just it was just this habit. Sort of what's happened is that I realized that I now am dealing with myself much more than I was when I when it was just sort of casually running around saying little n- kind of n- nasty things, not really bad, but it did it allowed me not to deal with my own stuff. And since then, my brother and I have gotten a lot closer. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, those of you who have partners, spouses, really look at what we allow to go on in the mind, you know? It's like, well, I'm not saying out loud, so what harm can it do? Well, it's really, because from, from the Buddhist teachings point of view, we make karma with thought, with word, and with action. So even though we may not be acting it out or speaking it out, if it's going on in our mind, if we're letting that action happen, that mental action happen, it sets something up. It has an effect. So we want to, it's hard, but we want to take responsibility. Honey, why are you thinking like that? Why am I thinking like that? What good is coming from that kind of thinking? Is that thinking actually true? I mean, these are the kind of things I have to ask myself. Is this actually true? You know, this mind complaining, like, I would never say that out loud to my wife, my partner. But it's interesting what I'll do in my mind. You know, I have to, I have to challenge that. Like, you know, stop picking on her. <laughs> I mean, basically like your mom. And boy, we want to be very happy for any place in our life that will reflect that back. Imagine, I always joke about this, but imagine if we had some of the best filmmakers that had access to not just what we say out loud, but what goes on in our mind. You know, every day, at the end of the day, they'd hustle and they'd edit down to like 
15 minutes the whole day, the highlights, and they'd play it back, what we were thinking and what we said. We would get so skillful so fast because <laughs> it would be so apparent to us what, what is causing suffering and what is alleviating suffering in our own heart, let alone in those people around us, if we could just have that reflected back to us. But we have this capacity to be unaware because we don't have good friends like your mom. You know, she was being a good friend in that moment. Thanks, Tom, for sharing that. Two more time for at least one more person. What comes to mind? What have you been learning about wholesome speech in your life? Questions you might have. Yes, please. I'm Annie. Um, you talked about, you know, if something you're going to say or you feel the urge to say is going to do harm, just stop. Don't even go there. But what about those instances, and maybe this is just my mind tricking me, but you feel like, you know, this is something that needs to be said. And maybe initially there might be harm, but in the long run, it's going to do some good. And is that, you know, and I think there's very obvious instances where, you know, someone might be harming themselves or others, but um, more subtle, you know, problems too. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the teaching isn't not to speak in ways, I mean, some, like you say, Annie, some of our speech is going to hurt, cause hurt. And uh, that's sometimes really good medicine. That's what the wor world needs. You see this around issues of racial justice these days as people um, get better uh, at pointing, using words and action to point at white privilege, for example, or point at some of the sy systemic injustice in our culture. And it's like really makes a lot of us feel uncomfortable, like that we're part of this, that we can't sort of live with this idea that, oh, it's fine or something, you know, whatever kind of delusion we might prefer. But it might be just the right medicine to make a lot of people uncomfortable. That might be part of a deeper kind of healing. So what you have to, you don't really know, but what you can know, it's hard enough, but what you can know is, what's the quality of your own intention or motivation? That you can get a sense. Are you doing it in order to hurt or are you doing it in order to heal, in order to take care of, because you care? Right? Is it compassion or is it aversion? And to be honest, a lot of times it's mixed. We kind of care about healing and doing what's right. And we kind of want to poke, too. So don't expect it to be always one or the other. It's almost always mixed. And so... In a sense, then we receive the karma. So whatever of that intention was unwholesome, there's going to be some suffering that will come our way. And whatever of the intention motivation was wholesome, it will feel to that degree liberating and freeing. And here's the other thing. If we've been making a lot of mistakes, um, just in our personality has been more to keep quiet and to shut up because that's what we've been conditioned to do then initially it might be a little bit explosive when we start to speak and it might be really messy, but that could be in the right direction, you know, just to realize we don't have to be afraid of speaking. Other people who always speak, you know, they might just need to, in a clumsy way, just keep their mouth shut for a while. 
And it may not be ultimately skillful, but it may be a step in the right direction to just notice what it's like not to be dominating the conversation for a while. Right? People like who do this for a living. <laughs> so let's let go of the words. I'll just take a few seconds to sit together, just enough time to take a couple breaths. Appreciate the silence. Appreciating the messiness of being a social being and having to use our words, having to negotiate with so many other people. So we can appreciate our elders, all the women and men who over the centuries developed some real wisdom and compassion and passed along what they've learned. And now it's our turn to hear the teachings, integrate them, develop wisdom and compassion in our lives, and become part of the causes for real peace and freedom from suffering in the world and in our hearts. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.